Luke chapter 18 is where we're going to be tonight, if you want to open up your Bibles there. Luke chapter 18, we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 30. The message, we're going to be talking about the rich, young ruler, this man who comes to Jesus and he asks a very important question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a pretty well-known story in the Bible, and I suppose part of the reason is because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this story. All three of those gospel writers say that this man was rich. Luke points out that he was very rich. Matthew is the one who tells us that he was young. Uh, Luke tells us that he was a ruler, most likely a ruler over a synagogue. And so from the outside perspective, of course, just even from a quick observation, you can tell this is a guy that kind of had everything the world says that is important, everything that the world says is essential for life and for happiness. Well, this guy has it all, money and power and influence. He's young, he's healthy, he's in the prime of his life, and yet he's gonna come and fall down at the feet of Jesus, and he's going to say there's something missing. There's something that's not right. Of course, the man in this story, he discovers something that I would imagine most of us in this room already know. And that is you can have everything that the world has to offer, but if you don't have Jesus, it's still not going to be right. There's always going to be something that's missing. It never will be enough because we've been created to know God. We've been created to worship, to worship God. We've been created to be in a relationship with him. But of course, sin has separated us from him. And we've all sinned. And Jesus is the only one who's paid the price for our sin. He's the only one who's died on the cross. And that's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. It's been rightly said that everybody has a God-shaped hole in their heart, and it's only until we go through that one door, it's only until we come to Jesus and we find forgiveness and life and a new relationship now with God through him uh, that that hole can be filled. Now, the world acts like there's so many different roads that you can go down. There's so many different paths that you can take that lead to happiness and to fulfillment. And of course, they want to argue and they want to debate uh, what that road is. Of course, you know, there's some in the world who say, well, you know, it should be wild partying. Wild partying, that's what's going to lead to life and happiness. It seems to be a favorite road among a lot of young people. A lot of young people are pretty convinced. Well, that's where life is really at. That's where I'm going to be fulfilled. I know that was the road that I went down before I knew Christ. Life is going to be through wild partying and drugs and alcohol and indulging in whatever carnal desire that my heart may have. And though a, young, a lot of young people fall prey to it, it's not to say that it doesn't uh, find its way into a lot of people's thinking. Uh, this is what life really is. Of course, you go down that road long enough and usually ends pretty destructively and someone realizes, I don't think this is giving me what I thought that it would. And of course, there's others in our world who say, oh no, you're going about it all wrong. Uh, you need to pursue knowledge. You need to pursue education. You need to expand your mind. That's where life is. And still others would say, no, it's money. 
It's power, it's possessions, it's all of the things that money can buy and money can bring into your life. There's some who get real close. Some who say, no, that's not what life is really all about. It's really about family, about friends, about community. It's even about religion and morality. There's some who really think that's the the true fulfillment. That's the road that you need to go down. But the bottom line is, if it's a road that doesn't begin with Jesus, if it's a road that doesn't begin with surrender and repentance and faith and trust and receiving what Christ has done on your behalf, then that means it's just a broad road that leads to destruction. The world acts like there's all of these different paths and all of these different a road you can go down, but really Jesus said it's just one broad road that leads to destruction if it doesn't involve him. And whatever, whatever path that this person might have been on, whatever he thought life was all about, of course, the real question, are we going to turn? Are we going to repent? Are we going to follow Jesus? That's how somebody begins a relationship with the Lord, of course. That's where it all starts. Repentance. Surrender. It doesn't matter which path. It doesn't matter which road. It doesn't matter if the world looks at you and says, oh, wow, you're wild, you're crazy, uh, you've got problems. Or if the world looks at you and says, no, you seem to have it all together. You, you've got a lot going on. If you have not surrendered to Jesus, are you going to turn? Are you going to repent? That's how a relationship with God begins. But I think there are times, even in the Christian's life, where God will call us back to that place because maybe something starts to creep in. Maybe something starts to compete for our heart, for our attention, for our focus, the passion of our life. There are times where the Lord would call us to recommit, to lay something down at his feet because he loves us, because he cares about us. He'll, he'll put his finger on that issue in our life and he'll say, you know, you need to surrender that. You need to give that over to me. And so that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. I'll start reading here at verse 18. I'll read down to verse 23, and we'll get into our study. It says, Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. Now, we read in the Gospel of Mark that not only did this guy just come up and start talking to Jesus, but he ran up to him and then he kneeled down before him. And both of those actions really speak of some humility. Really, there wasn't a lot of good reason for a respectable man to be running in that day and age and that culture and, of course, you know, the wardrobe that they have, his robe coming down to his feet, that he have to pull his robe up, he's running through the streets. It's not exactly a dignified look for a respected man in the community. And then he comes kneeling down in front of Jesus. And of course, it's this posture of humility. It's this posture of brokenness and surrender. Now again, we know that this was a ruler, a ruler of a synagogue most likely, which means he would have been under some pressure from the religious leaders. 
We know at this point that the religious leaders were already pressuring people to not have any association with Jesus. There was a threat of excommunication. We're going to kick you out of the synagogue, which that might not sound like a big deal to us. You get kicked out of our church, and well, there's a church down the street that'll welcome you in. But to be kicked out of the synagogue in Jesus' day, it was a big deal. It meant that you were really going to be ostracized from your whole community. And so that was the threat that the religious leaders were giving. It was a threat that this man had to be aware of. And yet he comes running to Jesus. He's not even trying to hide it. He's not trying to pull a Nicodemus and meet him at night and say, hey, you know, we know that you must come from God. He's running out in front of everybody, kneeling down before Jesus, kind of hard to hide, not really trying to hide, just openly humble and broken. And he's coming to Jesus, believing that he has some answers, even though there could be a risk, even though he could be under some pressure but there's something that's eating away at him and he believes that Jesus is the one who has the answer. He comes and he asks this very important question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the religious leaders, of course, they certainly acted like they had all of the answers. Uh, They had everything that you needed to know, but this man is becoming more and more convinced that they don't and perhaps Jesus is the real authority on the subject. Perhaps Jesus is the real authority when it comes to heaven, when it comes to eternity. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, the Bible says that it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And this man seems to be comingly, convincingly aware of the fact that one day he's gonna stand in front of God. And on that day, it's not gonna matter what the religious leaders said. They're not going to be standing there with them. It's just going to be him. And so this realization hits him. I better be sure. I better really know that I have eternal life, that I have a right relationship with God. I think it's a good realization for all of us to come to, especially from time to time if you ever find yourself playing a game, because I think that we can do that spiritually. We can pretend to be somebody that we're not. And there's this part of us that thinks, well, as long as I convince this person, as long as I convince this group that I'm this good, godly individual, that that's all that really matters, and we kind of play this religious game, this man comes to the conclusion, I'm going to stand in front of God, and he's going to see right through me. He's going to see my heart. It doesn't matter what anyone else says. Why should I be afraid of what they're saying? I I should be really in a place where I only fear the Lord. That's the place this man is coming to. And so he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there's a lot of different ways that Jesus could have approached this. There's a lot of different ways that he could have responded. Of course, the question itself has some holes in it. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I think it might expose a little bit of his mindset, where his heart was at, kind of the way that he looked at his life. What do I have to do? He was a hard worker. You couldn't arrive at the position that he was in, where he was this ruler of a synagogue. He's respected in the community. He has a position of influence and power. He was a hard worker. He was diligent. And so that's kind of his mindset. What is it that I need to do? Is there something that I need to work for? Is there something that I need to earn? But Jesus doesn't deal with that directly. Actually, Jesus doesn't get past the very first word that comes out of his mouth. 
The man comes to Jesus and he's kneeling down and he says, good teacher. And Jesus says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Why do you call me good? Now that was commonly taught at the time by the rabbis of Jesus' day, that only God was good. It's not a title that you're going to find attached to any other rabbi or religious leader. They didn't go by good teacher, good master, good rabbi. And so Jesus stops him and he says, why do you call me good? And he seems to then agree. God is the only one that's good. And of course, that is something that the Bible so clearly teaches and illustrates. Romans chapter 3 says, there's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who seeks after God. There's none that does good. We might think of a good person as someone who's trying their best, but that's not the biblical understanding of the word. The biblical understanding of good is perfection, never making a mistake, being perfect. The only one who is genuinely, perfectly good is God alone, and that's what Jesus is saying. And so when he calls them out, he says, why do you call me good? Notice Jesus doesn't say, don't call me good. He doesn't deny that he's God. He doesn't deny his deity. Again, that's something that the Bible is also quite clear about. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is God in the flesh. Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7, speaking of Jesus, says that he was in the form of God. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Jesus is God in the flesh, and so he doesn't say, don't call me good. He says, why? Why are you calling me good? And of course, what Jesus is doing here is he wants this man to think about what he just said. Though he is sincere and he's genuine, he wouldn't come running and kneel down in front of Jesus in the presence of all of these people if there wasn't something genuine going on in his heart. And yet he lets this phrase just kind of slip out without really thinking about it. Oh, good teacher, what must I do? And Jesus says, well, why do you call me good? Jesus wants him to think about those words. And I think sometimes it is important to press on people. Who do you say that Jesus is? Because a lot of people, they're very comfortable living in that middle ground, that gray area, where they would just say, well, yeah, Jesus is a good teacher. Oh, Jesus is a good man. Oh, there's a lot of things that we can learn from him, and some of his teaching is really powerful. And they're comfortable staying in that gray area, because they don't want to make a decision. And so the Bible and the Holy Spirit, he's always trying to bring someone to the place of decision. Well, who do you say that Jesus is? Are you for him or are you against him? Is he the son of God or is he a lunatic? He's one or the other. We can't live in this make-believe world where somehow, well, he could be a little bit of both. <laughs> He could be a little bit of the Son of God. He could be a little bit of God in human flesh, or maybe he just made the whole thing up. I'm not quite sure. The Bible, the Holy Spirit, he's always trying to bring a person to the place of make a decision. 
What is the verdict going to be? Who do you say that Jesus is? And so there's a little pressing that's going on here. He asks, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, he adds, when he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? So he says, good teacher, what good thing must I do? And I wonder if that was also part of the issue. Jesus says, whoa, 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 pump the brakes. Why do you call me good? Do you really understand what you're saying? And if you really understand what you're saying, then how do you think you could do something good? How do you think you could reach that level of perfection? How do you think you could make that standard? If you really understood what was being said, you would realize how impossible it would be for you to do something that is genuinely good. And so Jesus, he's causing this man to think deeply about the words that are coming out of his mouth and what is it that he really believes about Jesus. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Now you notice a few things there from verse 20. Going through some of the Ten Commandments, it's clear that he's dealing with the second half of the Ten Commandments. The first four of the Ten Commandments all deal with our relationship with God. The last six deal with our relationship with one another. And so here he kind of skips right past the first four commandments, and he's dealing with that second tablet, so to speak. And he's dealing with the second half that deal with our relationship with other people. The other thing to take note of there from verse 20, while he's focusing on the second half of the Ten Commandments, you notice he doesn't mention the Tenth Commandment, which is that you shall not covet. Uh, That's the one dealing with our relationship with other people that Jesus doesn't mention. He kind of deals with those commandments that are blatant and obvious actions, something that you can do. He, He leaves coveting out, which is kind of interesting. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 7 that it was, you shall not covet. He said, oh, that's what really got me. I was kind of under the impression that I was doing a good job. I hadn't murdered anybody. I hadn't stolen anything. I felt like I was keeping these commandments. But he said, when I got to, you shall not covet, that's when I realized that the law was spiritual. That's when I realized this is talking about something that I would desire And so, though I've never murdered anybody, have I ever wanted to? (laughs) Have I ever desired to take someone's life? Uh, Though I've never stolen anything, have I desired to steal something that didn't belong to me? Paul said, when I realized that covetousness was really desire and the law was spiritual, he said, that's when I came undone. That's when I realized that I've sinned against God and I fall drastically short. Of course, that's the way that Jesus taught the commandments. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and the beginning of verse 22, he said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Then in verses 27 and 28 of Matthew chapter 5, he said, You heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her already has committed adultery with her in his heart. 
And so that's the way that Jesus taught these commandments. He said it's not just the action. It begins in the heart. It's spiritual. Has this been something that your heart has desired? Then you're guilty of this sin already. Now, it's not to say there's not a difference in consequence. If I have murder in my heart, is there a difference between murder in my heart and actually going out and physically murdering someone? Yeah, I think there's a difference. There's a difference that the Lord would recognize in taking someone's life. There's a difference in the consequences that would come to me both now and for eternity. I think there's clearly a difference that's established there. But it's all the same in the sense that it is sin. Sin means to miss the mark. It's a term that's used, of course, in archery, to miss the bullseye. To miss the mark is sin. And of course, we spend all of this time arguing about who's closest to the bullseye. Oh yeah, but I was just an inch away. You're like a yard away. You didn't even hit the whole thing. You're nowhere near it. It's like, it doesn't really matter. Because whether we're an inch away or a yard away, if we miss the mark, then we all sin. And the penalty for sin is the same. Death, judgment, separation from God. And so it brings us to this place where we realize we'll all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. There is none who does good. And so Jesus, he's giving the commandments to this man. He says, come on, you know the commandments. You know the things that you should be doing. And in verse 21, this man said, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now, Jesus could have challenged him on that. Jesus could have been like, really? Have you? Are you sure? Well, let's think about that for a second. Jesus could have pointed out right then and there the spiritual nature of some of these commandments. He could have challenged him on this issue. He might have been able to bring up some specific moment in his life. Oh, yeah, what about February 6th, <laughs> you know? Uh, 15 AD, you know, what was going on that day, rich young ruler? You know, he might have brought up something specific. It's interesting, though, Jesus doesn't challenge him. He doesn't say, oh, that's not true. Oh, you haven't kept these things. He doesn't challenge him. And I think part of the reason is, is Jesus can see this man's heart. He sees where he's coming from. As he comes to Jesus and he's running down and he's falling down on his knees and he's, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? One of the things that we read in Matthew's gospel is after he says, well, all of these things I've kept from my youth. In Matthew's gospel, he says, what do I still lack? What am I still missing? Jesus seems to be giving him sort of the cold religious answer. Oh, come on, you know what you have to do, keep the law. Oh, you know what you have to do, don't murder her. You know, don't steal, don't lie, honor your father and your mother. Come on, keep the commandments. And he says, no, I've kept all of these things from my youth. And that word kept, it means I've, I've guarded all of these things. It doesn't necessarily mean I've perfectly obeyed them. It means, no, I've watched over these things. This has been a major part of my entire life. I've always tried my best. I've always tried my hardest. And, you know, that's all the religious leaders ever say. All they're ever telling me is to you know, follow these rules and follow these laws, and I've been doing that as diligently as I can, and yet I recognize there's still something missing. 
There's still something lacking. And so here is this broken individual who's run to Jesus and fell down at his feet. And he says, no, I know there's something missing in my life. And so this doesn't seem to be someone who's lifted up in pride. You know, someone who says, well, nope, I'm a good person and I can follow all of these rules and God's going to accept me on my own merit. That might be a time and a place to bring that person to reality. Like, okay, let's talk about that. Let's think about that. But this guy's broken. This guy realizes, no, there's, there has to be something that I'm not getting. There has to be something that I'm missing. Now, right when he said that, right when he said, well, all of these things I've kept from my youth, what is it that I still lack? It's in the gospel of Mark that we're told that Jesus looked at him, and the idea is he looked at him deeply, he looked down into his soul. He looked right into his heart. Jesus looked at him and loved him, Mark says. Jesus sees this guy with all of his problems, with all of his issues, with kind of this strange statement, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And saying things like, good teacher, what good thing must I do? And Jesus is like, do you even know what you're saying? Do you even know what you're really communicating with those words? And he says, well, all of these I've kept from my youth with all of his confusion, with all of his statements that could be challenged. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. He's moved with compassion. He cares about this individual. And of course, what Jesus says here in response, then you have to see through that lens. You have to recognize that Jesus is saying this to him not because he hates him, not because he wants to judge him. Jesus is saying these things to him because he loves him and cares about him. And so Jesus said in verse 22, here's what you still lack. You still lack this one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. Jesus says, here's the one thing that you're missing. Sell everything that you have. Now, I think most of us are aware of the fact that this is not some universal mandate that every believer, in order to be a Christian, that you have to sell everything that you have or that somehow you can't be rich. There's plenty of godly, rich men and women in the Bible that God has used greatly, and so that's not the issue. Jesus says it to this man that he loves, that he cares about. He says, this is what you lack. Here's what you're missing. And what you're missing, it would be better understood, not from the second half of the Ten Commandments. What you're missing would be better understood from the first half. The very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. That's commandment number one, and that's the issue for this man. For him, money was a God that came first in his life. Money was his master passion. Money and everything that money brought, that's what he bowed down to. That's what he worshiped. That's what he was going to answer first and foremost in his life. Jesus says, here's what you lack. Here's what has a grip on your heart. Here's what has a grip on your life. Here's what you need to lay down. This is what you need to get rid of. You know, for someone else, he might say it's drugs, it's alcohol, it's lust, it's immorality, it's selfishness, it's greed. 
all of these different roads that the world goes down, all of these various options that they say are available, if it has a grip on your heart, if it's what you're trusting in, if it's what your mind is consumed with, then that would be what Jesus says, okay, you need to completely turn away from that. You need to let go. You know, there's a powerful verse in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. God, he's speaking of the children of Israel. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God counts it as two evils. They've forsaken me, that's evil number one, and they've hewn for themselves cisterns, these broken cisterns. They've come up with some alternative to who I am and what I want to do in their life. That's evil number two. And listen, that is not just a problem for the children of Israel in the Old Testament. That is a problem that every human being faces. God and God alone, he is the fountain of living waters. That's what Jesus said. If you're thirsty, then come to me and drink. And out of your innermost being is going to flow rivers of living water. God alone is the fountain of living waters. What does that mean? All of the peace, all of the safety, all of the joy, all of the fulfillment, everything that we could find in life, God says it's found in me. You have to come to me. I have to be the source of your life, and I'm ready to provide everything that you need. But the fallen human condition is maybe there's some other source. Maybe there's some other path. And of course, there's all of these different wells that the world drinks from, and they all entice you in. And one might not be all that tempting to you. Oh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But there's always some option that the enemy brings that does tug on our heart, on our logic, on our way of thinking that we start to think, well, maybe there's some other option. Maybe there's something else that's available to me. And of course, these wells that the world drinks from, you know, he says, you've hewn for yourself cisterns. They would carve into the rock and they would collect water into the mountainside. And of course, they would do that. And I don't know that just collecting water in that way, if it was necessarily completely horrible and bad. But the problem was this. In the land of Israel, God had promised, as long as you're following after me, I'm going to send the rain. I'm going to send all of the water that you need. As long as you're walking in obedience, as long as you have a good relationship with me, you don't have to worry about the water. So here they are carving into the rock. And they're making these cisterns to then store the water. Well, if they don't have to worry about it, then why are they making these cisterns? Well, of course, because, well, what if we're not walking with the Lord? Or what if he doesn't keep up his end of the bargain? And so whether it was because they were planning on rebelling, whether it was because they didn't trust the Lord to provide, they would start to create these cisterns. And of course, it wasn't nearly as good. These cisterns, you know, that would get hot and gross and bugs and have a weird taste. And sometimes what could happen is there would be a deep crack in the surface. You know, we're familiar with cracks in the concrete here at our church. You know, it doesn't look like it's all that cracked. And then it starts raining. And sure enough, here comes these little puddles. Well, these deep cracks in the cisterns. 
and the water would start to leak and it would happen really slowly. And of course, what would happen oftentimes is they would come to these cisterns and uncover it only to find its bone dry in there. There was some deep crack in the rock that they were unaware of, and now there isn't any water. And of course, that does seem to be the case. When we turn our back on the Lord, when we have forsaken the fountain of living waters, and we've hewn some cistern, what what seems to be the case is when we're at our most desperate place. When we've come to the cistern because we're running out, and things are getting bad, and things are getting dry, and oh, well, at least I have this reserve that's available, and we go to uncover it only to realize it's bone dry. That's how the world works. That's the wells of this world. That's the roads and the paths of this world. That's how it always is. Right when you need help the most, you discover it's empty. You discover there's nothing there. You're in this vulnerable, dangerous place, and sadly, Sometimes people seem to be stuck in this endless cycle where they're just going from worldly well to worldly well. Oh, it wasn't this road. It wasn't this path. Maybe I should try something else. Jesus and Jesus alone is the fountain of living waters. And so he says to this man, here's what you have to do. You have to sell everything. It's got a hold. It's got a grip on your heart because he looked at him and he loved him. He said, here's what you need to let go of. Here's what you need to walk away from. And it says that he went away sorrowful because he was very rich. We don't know if he ever responded. We don't know if he ever got right with the Lord. I suppose we could be hopeful and say that, well, maybe eventually he did, and that's a possibility. But I will say this, the much better option when the Lord brings conviction into our life, when the Lord is gracious and merciful and loving enough to reveal to us, okay, here's the issue. Here's what you need to let go of. You know, maybe it is money and being consumed with that kind of thinking, or maybe it's power or greed, or maybe it's this relationship. Whatever it is, God says, here's what you need to let go of. If God is loving enough and gracious enough to do that, The much better response is to say, yes, Lord, you're right. The much better response is to respond right then and there. Of course, the Bible always puts the emphasis on today. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today, if you hear, don't just assume that there's countless opportunities, that there's plenty of time. That's not promised to anybody. And if God in his mercy is making these things known, then we should respond to him. And sometimes we act like it's such a punishment, you know, like it's all negative. Don't make me think about that. Don't stir up conviction. Don't make me start thinking about how I could be doing better or this issue that has some stronghold in my life. And remember, Jesus, he looked at this man and he loved him. He wasn't angry. He wasn't, oh, this is really going to put you in a bad mood for the next week. No, he looked at him and he loved him and he said, well, here's what you should do. If the Lord looked into our lives, if the Lord looked into your heart, he says, well, here's what needs to be done. It's not something to resist. It's not something to reject. It's something to remember that he's saying it because he loves us and he cares about us. And here's gonna be an opportunity for us to turn and to repent and be forgiven and be healed and be restored. 
We're going to finish with these last few verses here. Verse 24, it says, And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? But he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. So Jesus, he sees that this man goes away sorrowful. He says how hard it is for those to have riches to enter the kingdom of God, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You know, there have been attempts over the years to kind of make that say something that it doesn't really say. Uh, there are some who have pointed out, well, you know, that word camel could actually be talking about this thick rope that was used to hold these anchors, and so it's hard for a thick rope to go through the eye of a sewing needle. That's difficult. Uh, there have been some who said, well, you know, the ancient gates of these cities, you know, they would have this much smaller gate called the eye of the needle. And at nighttime, for security reasons, they would close up the gates of the city, but the eye of the needle, this smaller gate would be open. And the only way for someone to come through it, they'd have to unpack their camel and the camel would have to get down on its knees and it kind of squeezes its way through. And so that's what Jesus is talking about here. Now, all of that preaches pretty well because you can talk about laying everything down and kneeling down and being humble and all those kinds of things. The problem is, is historically, that's never really the way the church understood this scripture uh, to really be talking about. You don't see that at all in the early church. That's, those are interpretations that came much later where it's taking something that it seems to be impossible, and they're saying, well, no, that's not exactly what Jesus is saying. It's just that it's really hard. It's really difficult. It requires humility. When really what Jesus is saying, it seems to be suggesting, no, 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 it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, of a sewing needle. It's impossible for that to happen. Actually, there's some a Jewish writing and tradition that used a similar phrase talking about an elephant going through the eye of a sewing needle, and they just used it as a phrase to say, talk about anything that was just impossible. Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a sewing needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And of course, everybody starts flipping out, and they're like, well, wait a minute. Uh, who then can be saved? Because in their thinking, if you were rich, if you were being blessed with prosperity, the only real reason for that was because God was blessing you. It must be because you're this spiritual, godly person. That was the understanding of their day. That was what was being taught by the rabbis at the time. And so when Jesus says, oh, it's like almost impossible for this rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, they say, well, who then can be saved? Because in their eyes, this was the most holy, this was the most spiritual people that there were. Now, a little bit of clarity is provided as we uh, look in the other Gospels and we realize that Jesus, what he's talking about here, is not just a rich man, but those who would trust in riches. Those who would trust in riches and believe in them in the way that you should only believe in God. 
And so that's specifically what he's dealing with here. And of course, Jesus then clarifies, well, what's impossible with man is possible with God. And see, I like that interpretation better anyways. Because even though they're trying to give a little bit of breathing room to say, well, it's not to say that it's impossible, it's just really hard or difficult. I don't know about you, every once in a while, I find myself in an impossible situation. Uh, Certainly, the night that I got saved, the person that I was before Christ, I thought it was impossible. (laughs) It's impossible that I could be forgiven of all of my sin. It's impossible that I could ever change It's impossible that I could go in a different direction. That was certainly true of my life uh, when I first came to the Lord, but there are still times in my life where I think, oh, this just, how could this ever be? God, what are you doing in this situation? I like that there are things that are just impossible by any human explanation. And Jesus just says, well, what's impossible with men is possible with God. Something could have a grip on your life, on your heart, In your mind, it could have, it's, you know, just so embedded into you that it just seems like, I don't know that it could ever really be separated from me. I'm so intertwined with this thing. It's impossible that it could be removed. And Jesus is like, yeah, it is. Oh, it's in there good. Oh, it's impossible. But here's the good news. What's impossible with men is possible with God. If it's something that he's pinpointing, if it's something that he's saying, you know, this just needs to go. This has crept back in. This has taken away your focus. This is something that you either are consumed with or there's a real danger that it could lead to this place. And you might think, well, I don't know. Can I really break free? Jesus says what's impossible with men is possible with God. If he's taking the time to point it out, then he can give the power and he can give the strength that is necessary and he can do something truly miraculous in their life. And so Peter in verse 28, he says, see, we've left all to follow you. And he said to them, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children For the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come. And so here, the disciples are clearly a little bit confused. On one hand, they're saying, well, who then can be saved? And, oh, it's impossible with men, it's possible with God. But as Peter is listening to Jesus talking about laying things down and making these sacrifices, he says, we've left all to follow you. And again, Just like Jesus could have pushed back a little bit on the rich young ruler who said, you know, oh, I've kept all of these things from my youth, and Jesus could have challenged him a little bit on that. When Peter says, we've left all to follow you, Jesus could have pushed back a little on that too. Like, oh, really? You had had a lot going for you, huh, Peter? Seems like every time I saw you, you weren't catching any fish. It's interesting, the business that you had there in Galilee, you know? It's interesting, a little family business that you had going. You you really gave up a lot. Did you step down from glory? Did you step down from heaven? Were you eternally existing in glory and honor and praise and you stepped into the world that you created where you would be despised and rejected, where you'd be humbled and killed? Peter, did you really give up those kind of sacrifices? Jesus could have pushed back. Isn't it interesting, though? He doesn't push back at all. 
He says, assuredly, I say to you, there's no one who's given up these great sacrifices of houses or parents and family. There's no one who's had to sacrifice for the kingdom of God that is not going to receive many times more. Uh, we actually read in Matthew's gospel that you would receive a hundredfold. Whatever sacrifices you make here in this life, Jesus said, you're going to receive a hundred times more than that. And he doesn't challenge the validity of the sacrifice. You know, oh, I walked away from this business. You know, sure, I have a business now, but I walked away from that business, you know. I walked away from this land. I mean, I'm in a good situation now, but hey, here's what I've given up. He doesn't challenge the validity of it. He says, I understand there are sacrifices that you could potentially make in serving me and following me. He says, no one is going to give anything up that doesn't then receive a hundred times more. And notice, he says, in this present time, and in the age to come, eternal life. He says, there's going to be reward immediately. It might not be the kind of reward that the world values, but there's going to be some immediate benefit to following after Jesus and forgiveness of sins and a right relationship with God and peace and joy in your heart, knowing you're in the center of his will. Oh, there's things that could be falling apart all around you and the world could be saying, oh, you know, look at all this turmoil, look at all of this destruction. But if you're right with God, you're like, no, I'm good. There's blessing that's avail available immediately. David said in Psalm 27, 13, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. In the here and now, he said, I would have lost heart if I didn't think that there was some blessing right here, right now, and knowing God and being in a right relationship with him. Jesus says you'll receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come, eternal life. There's gonna be eternal reward and value and significance to any sacrifice that's made. Anything that we have to lay down, Jesus says there's gonna be an eternal reward. And so he says, don't lay up treasure on earth where moth and dust corrupt, where thieves break in and steal, lay up treasure in heaven where there's eternal value, eternal significance. He says, what does it matter if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? For the man that comes to Jesus in this story, for a moment, we, we don't know how it ended. We don't know if he eventually repents, but for a moment, all of that comes crashing down on him and he realizes no, what do I have to do for eternal life? Everybody's acting like they have the answers and they know what I should be doing. Jesus, I'm pretty sure you're the authority. What is it that I should do? How is it that I should respond? Uh, for a moment, he was in that place. And how he responded, did he eventually repent? We don't know. But as the Lord would look into our lives, as he would look into our heart, as he would see you, See right into the depth of your heart. See right into the depth of your soul as he would see you and he would love you. As he speaks things into your life of steps of obedience, of maybe calls to repentance, as he would speak into our heart and our life, are we going to be in that place where we say, yes, Lord, you're right. Yes, Lord, I want to be in the center of your will. Yes, Lord, I want to experience the blessing that's available in this present time and in the ages to come. Amen? Amen. We'll stop there for tonight.
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it's living and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so I just pray that your word would go out and that it would pierce into hearts and minds tonight, that you would meet with people right where they're at, Lord, that you would deliver that word that they so desperately need to hear. And we ask, God, that you would bring us to a place where not only do we hear your word, but that we would respond to it. Lord, we want to be doers of the word and not hearers only. We don't want to be those people who come so close. We don't want to be those people who almost got it, but then went home sorrowful because we didn't respond. So help us, Lord, in your grace and in your mercy, that when we hear your voice, that we would respond in the way that you would have us. We love you, Lord. And we praise you. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.